going to go ahead and get started. Uh, hey, thanks for being here this morning. I don't know if, if you feel like this. I feel like just getting here this morning was a big victory for me. So I don't know if it feels like that for you, but uh, I'm glad you're here. And as we start this season, we're t- we've mentioned it already that we're walking into uh, what the church for a long time has called Advent. And Advent, that word, it simply means coming. And we mark this season, this Advent season, because we are a people as Christians who live between two Advents, between the two comings of Jesus. That he came once at Christmas nearly 2,000 years ago, and he's coming again. And if you have questions about that or are curious about that, we just preached a whole sermon series on Revelation. So you can go back and listen to that online to find out all about it. But we're a people who live between these two comings of Jesus, which means we're awaiting people. It's who we are. And so every time around Christmas, we take this time to pause, to slow down in the midst of a world that speeds up, and to practice waiting. That what we do in these four weeks as we practice waiting prepares us for the overall practice of waiting that we're engaged in throughout our lives. That's the Advent season. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take some different texts from the Christmas story, and we're going to preach through them. This morning's it'll be from the Old Testament, but then we'll jump in and we'll have some stories from uh, the the birth narratives, uh, the beginnings of Jesus' life. And maybe you've been around church for a long time and you have heard these sermons preached, I don't know, hundreds of times. Or maybe you're new to the church environment and chances are even then you have still heard the Christmas story, even if it's just from the Charlie Brown special, right? that we're familiar with it. And because we're familiar with it, it can become tradition to us. It can become a piece of the kind of sentimental furniture that gets rearranged at Christmas, like the ornaments on our Christmas trees. And maybe for you, when you encounter the sentimentality of Christmas, maybe you just love it, right? Because there are people like that. Dude, they just, they love like the warm fuzzies. They love the Hallmark movies. Like, give me all of it, right? Or maybe when you encounter the sentimentality of Christmas, because this is East Nashville, right? Maybe it kind of makes you gag. Is anyone in that? You don't have to raise your hand. That would be a lot right now. But that's true. This kind of like, oh, I don't, like, I don't want that. And, and regardless of where you fall, it's possible to treat this Christmas season and what's happening in here during Christmas like a sentimental show. But what we believe, what I'm asking you to dare to believe with me this morning is that God actually wants to speak to you, that he is doing something. He's here present in his Holy Spirit and there's something that he wants to stir up in your heart that has value for you and how you live your life moving forward from this day, even today. So the candle that we had to flick on because we can't have... uh, active flames in this beautiful building, okay? Uh, all of this, all of the stuff they're doing that reminds us of Christmas, it's, it's yes, there's tradition in it, yes, there's sentimentality in it, and, and yet, in the midst of all of that, what we believe, even this morning, what I'm daring you to believe with me, is that Jesus is at work and that he wants to speak to you and change your life even today. And what we're gonna be talking about specifically this morning is hope. That we as humans, are always telling stories. We're always making sense of our past and we're always looking into the future. And when we tell those stories about the future, what we are always attempting to imagine for ourselves is good things, right? That's hope. 
is forecasting or predicting goodness into the future. We have to. If we don't, the quality of our life plummets. And the, I don't know if this is the best illustration, but the illustration that kept coming to mind for me this week is obviously from season 45 of Survivor, which is the current season, okay? If you're new here or you're visiting, something you just need to know is that I love Survivor. I'm not ashamed of it. And if you haven't figured it out, one of my goals in each season is to incorporate at least one illustration in the sermon from that season. So here we are, season 45, okay? And what you need to know about season 45 is that, well, first about Survivor, the background. Yes, it's still on. Yes, it's been on for 22 years. And there are people who for literally their entire conscious lives have been aware of Survivor and have wanted to be on the show. So there are people who, when they, when they get on, they talk about how this has been a decades-long dream for them to be on the show. And each year, over 25,000 people apply to be on. So to be chosen as one of these 18 contestants is a big deal. Okay, but here's what happened this season that was absolutely unprecedented in the history of Survivor. Are you, are you on the edge of your seat? In the first nine days, two people quit. They I heard someone do it. Yes, it's shocking. Two people just quit. They said, I can't do it anymore. What happened? All of America was wondering, what happened? This is what happened. They lost hope. And as they described, and believe me, they did to the one-on-one -on -one cameras, right, why they quit Survivor, it was because they could not imagine anything good happening or coming out of their Survivor journey. So they pulled the cord. I'm done that our ability to forecast goodness into the future has a dramatic impact on the way that we experience our day-to-day -day lives. Right? And while we may not pull the ripcord, if we cannot imagine that goodness, it brings us into this place of deep sadness, depression, and an inability almost to move and take any initiative out into the world. But that's what happens when we lose hope. So hope matters. And, and what I'm praying for and hoping for this morning is that as we see what Scripture has to teach us about hope, that it would in a very tangible way change the way that you experience this Advent season. Because this Advent season, it is full of hope. Another word for hope uh, would be expectation, right? And the holiday season from Thanksgiving to Christmas is this just absolute tsunami of expectation crashing into our lives, isn't it? And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But what that, what that points out to us is it's a time that's filled with hope, hope that's gone awry, but hope that the gospel can redirect and change for us and that rather than living in a place of these unhealthy and unmet expectations, that there's the possibility that we could walk with peace and freedom and healthy relationship in this season. Does that sound like good news to you? Like something you would want in your life? Yes, right? That you could move from worry and anxiety about all the plans that you're making for this season into a place of confidence and clarity. Would that be good news? Yes. That's what Christian hope can do. And our passage this morning is calling us into that. So I'm going to invite Ellie Turner to come up. Ellie is going to be reading our scripture for us this morning. We're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Micah. So it's just that part of the Bible book song where you kind of get tripped up. So you need to find the table of contents if you want to follow along. But it will also be up here on the screen if you want uh, to follow that way. And as Ellie is reading, I'm going to ask you to... Uh, here we go. 
to do something as you're reading. I want you to count the number of times you hear the word shall in this passage. Not you, but them, okay? So you count the number of times you hear the word shall in this passage. Okay, so Micah 5, 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You can stop there, Ellie. Thanks. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, as we come to it this morning, uh, we confess that we are a people who are full of desire. Uh, Lord, desire that we often have a hard time understanding and ask, Lord, that as we dig into what this uh, really old passage of scripture has to say to us, uh, Lord, that you'd be speaking to us in an enlivening hope in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we talk about hope this morning, we're gonna talk about it from three different angles. Okay, we're gonna talk about the realism of Christian hope. We're gonna talk about the certainty of Christian hope and the how of Christian hope. So if you are a note-taking person, those are the three things, okay? Realism of Christian hope, the certainty of Christian hope, and the how of Christian hope. When we read this passage, uh, it sounds pretty positive, doesn't it? Like, even if you don't know all the details or what's going on here, you think, like, generally the tone of the passage is a positive tone. And yet, in verse 3, we get this seed uh, of an idea that there's something not quite right. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. Give them up to what? And when you read Micah as a whole, this Old Testament prophet, you get a better context for this kind of positive prediction that is happening in this passage. And what you realize is the context surrounding these positive promises is really dark. That there's this empire, the Assyrian Empire, that was particularly brutal to the nations that they conquered. Like one of the things they would do is they would take fish hooks and they would put them in the roofs of the mouths of the people they had conquered and they would wind them all up on a, str- like on, a, on a rope and they would march them back with those fish hooks in their mouths from the lands they had captured back to Assyria. That was, this is the kind of empire that we're talking about here. And what had just happened while Micah is being written is this, this evil empire had attacked and conquered the whole northern part of the kingdom of Israel because the kingdom of Israel had split into two parts, okay? So the northern part had been attacked and conquered by Assyria. And now Assyria is menacing the southern half of the kingdom. They're menacing Judah, and the people are freaking out. It's terrifying. But the circumstances of the lives of the people who were first reading these promises were incredibly dark. And yet, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Because the reason the Assyrians were were coming in was, in a sense, God was using them to to visit judgment on his people because of the rampant injustice that was being practiced day in and day out in in Judah. That 
what had happened, and this is like, we're talking like back in Old Testament history, right? When God calls his people, he makes promises to them. And he says, hey, I'm going to bless you. That's my goal here. And when you walk in my ways, when you obey me, there's going to be blessing for you. And, and also, because of this people's unique relationship to God, when they depart from those commandments and those teachings, that he tells them what's going to happen is judgment is going to come into your life. I'm going to use that judgment to discipline you and bring you back to me. So the reason, in a sense, that there is this judgment being visited on Israel and then on Judah is because of the injustice that is happening right within the people. So the the darkness is not only a darkness that's happening out there, the darkness is also a darkness that is in here. It's in in the systems, it's, it's in the water, it's in every part of the life of this people. And yet it's not only this thing that can be abstracted away from individuals, but there are people, God's people, are practicing and living in evil and immorality. We could call it idolatry would be another word for it. That they're insisting that they will be the kings of their own lives. That's where all of the injustice spawns from, that you've got people who are taking bribes, who are stealing from orphans and widows, who are living in all of these ways that dishonor God. It's an incredibly dark picture. And that darkness is the seedbed of hope. See, if you've grown up in the church or you've been around Christians for any amount of time, uh, there can be this sense that, that, Christians are kind of like blind optimists. The people who cover their eyes and just say, hey, it's all going to be okay. God's got it. Like a kind of a sunny disposition is like the way that you're supposed to be a Christian. There is no place for that in the scriptures. The scriptures in ways that often make us uncomfortable force us to confront the darkness in the world around us and that that darkness is not only outside of these walls, but it's in here and that it's in us. And that's the starting place for hope. It's it's the seedbed of Advent. If we're going to have a realistic picture of what it means to walk as Christians who are hopeful in this world, we've got to acknowledge the darkness that is all around us. So where do you experience that darkness in your own life? Where are the circumstances? How do the circumstances around you, the situation in which you find yourself, uh, where is that dark? Where do you experience the injustice, the unfairness, the immorality of the world pressing in on you? And where do you see that in yourself? And you guys know this. I mean, as we live in this expectation of Christmas, right, all of the expectations of it, all of that stuff gets pushed out to the surface, doesn't it? That you see parts of yourself you would rather be blind to. call here in Advent in the beginning of this season is to acknowledge the darkness that is the seedbed of hope. And in the midst of that darkness, um, there's also certainty of hope. And in fact, it's the certainty of Christian hope that gives us the courage to look at and admit the darkness in our world and in our lives and in our own hearts. Because against the background of this, of this certain darkness is a, cer- is a certain, a sure hope. Okay, how many shalls did you count in the passage that Ellie read? Seven. There we go. 
So seven different times throughout this passage, God, did anyone else get seven? Yeah, okay, we got a few people who are, yeah. Uh, so seven times throughout this prompt passage, God promises that he's going to do something. And it even just struck me this morning that, that that seven is significant. If you're with us through Revelation, you know that, that seven is this number in Scripture of completeness, that in this, in this looking forward to the future that these people in the Old Testament were receiving, God was promising, even in the midst of this darkness, even in the midst of darkness, that was their fault in some way. God is saying, still, I am dedicated to doing good for you that you cannot do for yourself. Right, because that, that's part of what we, what we experience when we acknowledge the darkness around us is that it is too great for us to address or fix or work our way out of by ourselves. And yet in the midst of that darkness, God comes to his people and he says, I shall, I will, I promise. And the promises that he makes are promises to do good to his people. To do for them what they can't do for themselves. And what's true about God, and this is so important, is that God has both the ability and the desire to fulfill his promises. Because we have all been in relationships or been in situations in which one of those things is lacking. Like when you're on the phone with someone doing customer service and they promise you the world and then you get off the phone and you realize that ticket is never going to get dealt with, right? And I guess sometimes that can be either one, the lack of desire or the lack of ability. Someone who's just down on the food chain, doing what they can to make you feel better, but you know at the end of the day, they don't have any power to change it. Or people who don't have the desire to actually fulfill the things that they've promised. It can go either way. That God's promises are the only certain promises that exist in the entire universe. And what those promises do is they expose, they expose so much of what passes for hope in our world. The certainty of God's promises expose uh, the fraud of all of the other things that we call hope in our lives. Because hope has a very wide lexical range. Right, that hope really describes anything that we desire in our lives. We use the word hope to describe it. Okay, so to help illustrate this, I'm going to need three volunteers. And I promise you, all you will have to do is hold a piece of cardboard. Okay, we've got one. So Duke, you can go ahead and come up. Yes? I need two more. Yes? Jess? Yes? Jane? Okay, you got it. So Duke, you're going to hold, you're going to hold this word, okay, for us. And you're going to stand right here. Okay, everyone, what is this word? Wish. Okay, uh, we use the word wish, at, we use hope to describe things that we wish for, don't we? Like you might say, oh, I really am hoping to win the lottery. Now, you don't really like hope, hope it, but like it would still be nice, you wish for it, right? Then we've got, okay, you guys, you guys change spots. Okay, then we've got expectation. So uh, an expectation is different than a wish. Because this we like know probably isn't going to happen, but this is something we are very certain is going to happen. We all have a lot of these. Like maybe you were watching a football game last night, and up until the last minute, you were very certain that Auburn was going to win, right? You had the expect, is it, a little, is it a little too soon? I'm sorry. You had the expectation that Auburn was going to win the game. Now, you had no control over it, no ability to influence its outcome, but you, you recognized you had this expectation it was going to happen. Then, over here, we have uh, your plan. That there are things that you hope so desperately for that you've actually made a plan to bring those things into fruition. Like you have taken action toward them, right? 
So you can see this is kind of a continuum from like least realistic to most realistic. Also somewhat uh, responsive to our effort. The least effort, the most effort to making those things happen. So lottery, Auburn winning. And we just call this your tropical alternative to Christmas, right? You could plan for it. You could try to make it happen. What we've got to admit, guys, is uh, none of these things are certain. We put so much emphasis, so much effort into dreaming about what would happen if they become true, but we have no control over that being the case. Like, like you have no control over winning the lottery, right? And yet, as silly as you know, that as unlikely as it is for you to win, uh, when you buy a ticket, if you ever buy tickets, and you check the number and you didn't win, do you feel like a little bit of disappointment still? Right? Like a little bit. Like you knew it was silly, but you're still like a little bit bummed out about it. Now let's talk about what happens when our expectations aren't met. Like when you're watching that Auburn game and you expect Auburn to win, but then in the last minute Alabama throws a 41-yard pass into the end zone and crushes you. It's devastating. That there are expectations, things that you hope that you expected to happen, and when they don't happen, it's so gut-wrenching. And yet you realize I had no control over it in the first place. And then our plans, uh, this has happened to us before where we have planned an alternative tropical Christmas and uh, the plans get totally derailed. It could be COVID. It could be he who shall not be named, Lord uh, Vondermort. Voldemort, yeah. Vondermort is what we call it in our house. It's just the uncontrollable sickness that can be visited upon you when you have kids at any moment. Right? But it derails your plans. It doesn't matter how much you have prepared for them. And, and the certainty of Christian hope, it puts all of these things in the shade. And it teaches us to, to, to put that hope somewhere else. Okay, guys, thank you. You can set down your cardboard now. That's great. Can we give him a hand, huh? Here is the certainty that we are promised in this passage. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. But in this passage, God is promising, I'm going to bring you a king. I'm going to bring you a king, and that king is going to deal with all of the evil circumstances in the world. He's going to deal with the evil that is out there. He's going to deal with the evil that's in here. And he's going to deal with the evil in our own hearts. That's the promise of this king. And, the, and let's just acknowledge for a second, okay, this is why the temptation to put our hope in politics is so strong. Because God has promised us a king. And it's so easy. You can look at it throughout history. The, the, the world is tempted to do it as Christians were tempted to do it, to put our hope in a political solution to what is only promised to us through God's king to come. But the good news for us is that this king has already come. Right? That's we're living between the first and the second advent, that our king came at Christmas. And because of that, there are ways that these promises are true for us. We can be certain of them even now. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. What that means is that even now, you have a shepherd. You do. That if you are in Christ... <laughs> that if you were in Christ, you have a shepherd, right? In the midst of all the places in your life you were screaming like that, you have a shepherd. It's true. 
You have a shepherd who loves you, who sees you, who knows you, who cares for you, a shepherd who goes before you. Think of Psalm 23, right, whose rod and his staff comfort you, who uses discipline and his guidance to move you in a direction toward life, to take you to a place where your soul can be restored, where you will lay down uh, next to streams of flowing water. You have a shepherd. It's true. That you dwell secured. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That our hope is not in us being made great, but in the fact that our king is great. And that great king that we have promises us that we are secure. He does not promise that we are safe. Because we live in a world that is still evil. There are still bad things, hard things, evil things that happen to us and that we experience. And yet what our hope is in the midst of them is that there is no circumstance that is outside of God's promise to take what is evil and turn it to good in our lives. That's what it means that you are secure. It's true. That if you are in Christ, you are secure. And the promise is that he will be your peace. Not that he will give you peace, but that he himself will be in you and he will be your peace. These are promises that are already true. They are already certain for you in Christ. And the certainty of these promises now changes the way that we imagine and live into the future, that you have been given a hope. And so now the call on us as Christians is that now we would flex our muscles of hoping. Okay, so to help explain this, we're gonna use an illustration from Harry Potter, okay? So have any of you read Harry Potter or seen Harry Potter? Can I just see some hands to know this is not gonna be totally lost on all of us? Great, if you haven't, I would recommend it. Yes, it is a children's book, but yes, it will probably get quoted in here more than just this week. So it, it would be beneficial to you to read it. Uh, there's this, in case you have not heard the story, there's this kid, Harry, who is orphaned. He lives a very sad life uh, with his very unkind and very unmagical aunt and uncle, okay? And his cousin who beats him up. Uh, and then one day, everything in, his, in Harry's life changes. Because Harry is visited, he gets these letters, it doesn't matter. Harry's life changes, okay? And what Harry realizes is that he is a wizard. And that he has been enrolled at this school, the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And it's going to change everything about his life. And there's this whole hullabaloo about how he gets there in the first place. But finally, he leaves his aunt and uncle's house, and he's about to go to school. But to go to school, especially at a private magical boarding school, you need things like books and cauldrons and robes and stuff that costs money, right? And Harry doesn't have any money. And his aunt and uncle certainly aren't going to pay for wizarding school. Okay, so there's this moment where he says to Hagrid, the guy who's taking care of him, I haven't got any money. And you heard Uncle Vernon last night? He won't pay for me to go and learn magic. Uh, I'm not going to do my Hagrid. Maybe I will. Ah, uh, don't worry about that, said Hagrid. He's got a gruff voice, a big beard, standing up and scratching his head. Did you think your parents didn't leave you anything? But if their house was destroyed, ah, uh, they didn't keep gold in their house, boy. Nah, the first stop for us is Gringotts, the wizard's bank. And then... A few pages later, uh, Harry arrives at the bank, into the account, into the room that his parents had left for him. It says, a lot of green smoke came billowing out, and as it cleared, Harry gasped. Inside were mounds of gold coins, 
columns of silver, heaps of little bronze nuts. All yours, smiled Hagrid. All Harry's. It was incredible. The Dursleys couldn't have known about this or they'd have had it from him faster than blinking. How often did they complain about how much Harry cost them to keep? And all the time there had been a small fortune belonging to him buried deep under London. But this whole time, outside of Harry's knowing, he had, he had this incredible fortune that was promised to him. And yet it existed outside of his awareness. And that is true for us as Christians. That you have been given a hope. You've had a hope secured for you outside of your own effort. From nothing you could do for yourself. All of these promises of God that are true for you. Whether or not you choose to live in them. And how often do we not? They belong to you. You're entitled to them. And the call for us now is that we would start flexing our muscles, that we would begin this process, strengthening our, our hoping so that we can take, take, uh, make use of everything we've been given in Christ. Are you with me? That's what begins to change the way that we experience this Christmas season, the waiting and the expectation Because all of the expectation, it gets ratcheted up at Christmas, doesn't it? Especially expectation with family. Now, some of you are sitting in here with your family, so it's okay. Let's just admit that's like a part of it, right? And we all have it. Kids have it of parents. Parents have it of kids, no matter how old everyone is. And of course we do. Because we all have this deep desire to be totally, completely known and loved. And our family is the place that provides the sense of that greatest promise for us. And yet we know it's the place where that also gets the most broken. Of course. And even if you are not celebrating holidays with family, the goal is to celebrate the holidays with people who are like family to you. Which means in some way you're probably putting on them all of the weight and expectation you would put on your family instead. And can we just acknowledge what some of those expectations are? Right? The expectation that when I'm hosting Christmas, all the people in my family will show up. And if I want my sister to show up, who doesn't usually, then I talk to my mom who talks to my sister to make sure that she, you know what I'm talking about? Or maybe the expectation is there's someone who, is, who won't show up. Like, go ahead and invite them, but we expect them not to show up, which is why it's okay to invite them because we don't want them to come in the first place. The expectation that, uh, man, talk about bringing kids into the equation the way that ratchets up the expectation that if you've brought kids to a family event, there's this expectation that, man, uh, do people see that I have kids and that I need help with these kids, right? I have the expectation that you'll help me or maybe you don't have kids and you show up and you think, why do these people with kids think everything's about them? The fact that there are very few laughs maybe you think this is maybe a little bit too real, okay? <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about? Or the expectation, maybe you show up and you're, you're single at holidays, with your whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving with your family, and you think, I just wish that people here would recognize, I, I expect them to acknowledge that, yes, I am, I am like not a freak because I'm not married. And also, uh, I want them to understand, I don't want to spend the whole time as uh, diagnosing my love life. Like, I have the expectation that we would not talk about that the whole time. I have the expectation that they would understand, I am not here to get their advice on my dating life for this entire trip. The expectation that this time uh, your mom won't drink. That this time they won't get drunk. That this time it'll be different. Right? We come with all of these expectations to Christmas. 
all these expectations for the holidays, and yet we've got to acknowledge that so many of them are uncertain. But what we do know is certain is the hope that we have in Jesus, that in all of those situations, we walk in as people who have a shepherd, as people who have been given peace. And rather than thinking about the future and doing all of our worrying and like worrying a ton about it, filling our hearts with anxiety, looking forward to it, and then afterwards overanalyzing it and judging ourselves and everyone else for how they didn't live up to our expectations. Right now, we are free as people who have hope to, when we think about what's coming up in a few weeks, to forecast into the future the fact that our Jesus, who knows us and loves us, will be shepherding us into those moments that he'll be with us there. That in those moments, regardless of the political, conversational chaos that's unfolding around us, we can be people who still have peace because we have it. Does that sound better? Okay, so here's what I want to do. Just spend the last few minutes talking about a practical way that we can begin to hold on to that peace, to, to flex our muscles of hoping. And it's this practice called the daily examine. So my invitation and kind of challenge for us during Advent is that we as a community would begin practicing this uh, as, a, as a part of our daily routine. I, some people practice it at night. I can't because I fall asleep. So I do it in the morning, okay? Uh, but the way that it works is that you sit still, quiet when you can get it, plant your feet, relax your body, take some deep breaths, and acknowledge, God, uh, you are with me. And I am with you in this moment to say to the Holy Spirit, you're here. And then to ask the Holy Spirit, would you help me see your presence in my day? It's a way of reviewing the day that has just happened. Then you essentially play back the day and just say, Holy Spirit, would you stop me when there's something here you want me to think about? And ask, as you're reviewing your day, the questions, uh, where did you experience, where were you aware of God's presence during your day? Where were you aware of God's presence? And what was it like for you to be open to God's presence in your day, to acknowledge that? How did you experience that moment? As you're replaying your day, then to also ask, uh, where were there moments that you were ignoring or pushing God away, trying to block him out? What was that like? Why? And in the moments that you can acknowledge, oh, I was experiencing God's presence there, I was aware of it, to thank God. And in the places where you were ignoring it or pushing it away to say, God, I'm sorry, or God, would you heal this thing in me that is making me do that? And then after kind of playing back the time, uh, what I've started to do is to also think about the day that is coming up. To, to play through the events that I have already rehearsed in my mind. But instead of doing them and thinking about them as me being alone in those moments, to think about them as God being with me in them and to ask him for the things that I am hoping for or that I am desiring in those moments. And as we, as we engage in that practice, I will tell you just what I am experiencing in my own life is that in the course then of living through that day, uh, I'm being reminded of the fact that Jesus is with me during the day. It's practicing hope. Oh, God, you're with me. Oh, there's a, a way for me to experience peace right here, right now, even in the midst of all the uncertainty and the chaos around me. And that as we repeat that pattern uh, daily, or maybe not daily because consistency is hard, but maybe a few times a week, right? 
we begin to flex those muscles of hope to bring these promises into our day-to-day present. And it begins then to free us to experience our days differently. To acknowledge, I've got some friends who, uh, they have this tool that they use with each other to talk about uh, what are our needs, our wants, and our expectations. Needs, wants, expectations. That when, I, when my hope is anchored securely in Christ, right, when I can forecast peace into the future, then I can start to look at my wishes and my expectations and my plans, and I can begin to acknowledge the ways that those things are actually uncertain. So I don't have to remain blind to them or keep them in this like a place of illusion, but I can actually engage with them myself and then begin to ask other people to engage in them with me. An unhealthy expectation is an, un, is an expectation that is unspoken and unagreed upon. And I prefer to keep my expectations that way because then I can remain under the illusion for as long as possible that what I want to happen will happen and I don't have to think about what if, what if it doesn't happen. But when my hope is anchored in Christ, when I know I have a Jesus who is shepherding me into the future, who will be with me, who is my peace, I can look at those things and acknowledge they may not happen and then, when appropriate, take steps toward people to stating those expectations and asking them if they agree to them. See, now we're engaging, we're moving toward healthy relationships. And I just want to acknowledge, guys, as we close up, one of the hardest people to do that with is God. That we all have so many desires, so much desire for what we want to happen in our lives. This, this desire for happiness, for wholeness, for completeness, for joy that is so incredibly deep. And that we are constantly trying to figure out how we achieve that by managing our circumstances and other people and ourselves to get to that place of happiness. And if we can enlist God and if we can get him on our agenda to make us happy, man, what a coup. And so that's what we often do. That we'll convince ourselves that God has agreed to do things for us that he has never agreed to do. And then when he, when he falls through, we're so disappointed. Because of the confidence we have in him, the hope, the certain hope that we have, there's a different way for us to engage God, which is to bring all of our wishes, all of our expectations, and all of our plans and lay them at his feet and say, God, these are the things that I desperately want in my life and I am, uh, and I am unable to get them and I'm giving them over to you. Would you meet me in them? Would you do them? And then to remind our hearts, ultimately, Lord, my hope is not in you doing these things, but is in you. In you promising that you are always doing good to me. And there are moments, guys, where that is so uh, hard to imagine. Like I think of uh, the second time that my grandma was diagnosed with cancer. And she's one of my best, she's one of my best friends. And had to watch her go through treatment and then decide that she didn't want to go through treatment anymore because it was too hard. Not because it was too hard. uh, Because that's not what God was calling her to. And then I watched in the last few months of her life when someone sent her an article about this root that could be made into a pill that she started taking and she began to hope that 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 treatment was going to be the thing that cured her. And to have to listen to my grandma who I who I love so much and who hoped in Jesus so much, start to put her hope in this pill, this rando root pill 
It was so hard. But what it was showing is that she wanted the same thing I wanted, which was we desperately wanted her to be better. And she had done in her mind these mental gymnastics to convince herself that God told her that this was going to work, and it didn't work. And it was so sad. And I watched her in those last, I mean, I didn't watch her. We talked on the phone a lot. I heard her work through that and the disappointment of that unmet desire. And I remember having to tell her, Grandma, uh, there is healing coming. It just may not be the way that we want. And to remind her, your marriage, which has been so broken for so long, is so different because of these last several months. Your relationships with your sisters, with our family, that it, it's different because of what Jesus has been doing in you uh, over this time of, of, uh, of treatment and not treatment. But there's so many times that God does not do the things that we beg him to do. And yet, we're called to be people who are prisoners of hope, not who embrace this kind of tinny optimism that God's going to do whatever we ask, but the certainty that he is with us, he's shepherding us, and that he is our peace now and into the future. And when we doubt that, the thing that we hold on to, and the thing that I watched my grandma hold on to more than anything else, was knowing that Jesus died for her. And that he rose again for her. And that if he can do that, that if God would do that, that even in the midst of so much darkness, even in the midst of so much unmet desire, that we can trust that God is good and that God is going to fulfill his promises. And that he's coming again. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we need you. We need you to come and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. God, uh, let's confess that we are a people who's, we're so afraid, Lord, I'm so afraid of how much I desire goodness in my life. We're so afraid of it, God, and we do so many things to manage it, to push it down, to be unaware of it. And Lord, uh, as we worship you, God, we bring those desires to you, uh, to cry out to the depth of them, Lord, and to acknowledge that we have hope, not because we can imagine a world uh, where the goodness happens, but because we have a God who has given everything for us. Would you stir that in us this morning? Amen.